The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Berguin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at 1-877-340-9182. How we celebrate the holidays and Christmas has changed dramatically over time. People who used to decorate their homes with only fresh greenery and fruits in the colonial period would frankly be shocked by how we deck our halls these days, and not just because of the whole electricity thing. For example, the Christmas tree, a centerpiece of many of our homes during the holidays, wasn't even a household staple until the late 1800s thanks to the trend-sitting Queen Victoria and her German husband, Prince Albert, whose native country is said to have pioneered these shimmering vestiges of the season's festive spirit. There are many ways that cultures, customs, and all the things that make us unique have taken root in holiday traditions, especially among those enslaved by an institution that often sought to erase the qualities that make us all human. In the time of slavery, Christmas is often cited as a brief annual window when the barrier between slave and owner was softened. Broadly, and somewhat inaccurately, it has been used as a momentary lapse in the otherwise rigid and unforgiving system of slavery, when those who bought and sold other humans were suddenly willing to loosen the tightness of their chains. As a country, we have been hardwired to believe that such a switch can be so easily flipped. It's the reason why we love stories like Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas and Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. We are encouraged to believe the spirit of the season is enough to compel even the coldest of hearts or cruelest of institutions to open themselves up to a little humanity. But when you replace the nuance of truth with a more palatable distortion of it, The resulting narrative often undermines the very real effort made by those without power to ensure that they and their traditions aren't forgotten in favor of someone else's story. Hello and welcome to a special holiday episode of Berguin Wright Presents Cape Fear Legends and Lore, a podcast series telling the stories of North Carolina's Cape Fear region through the history of one of its oldest historic sites. My name is Hunter Ingram. I'm the Assistant Museum Director of the Berguin Wright House and Gardens in Wilmington, and I'm your host for this podcast. 
this season on Berguin Wright Presents, we are cracking open the essential local history text, Stories Old and New of the Cape Fear Region, published in 1956 by famed historian Louis T. Moore. Each episode, we take a chapter from the book and interrogate the fact and fiction of that story as told by Lewis. What's true? What's fabrication for the sake of a good story? We're going to get to the bottom of why these stories have survived for centuries in some cases, and what they say about the Cape Fear today. This episode, we're taking a lead from the holiday season and exploring a Christmas-centered story from Lewis's book, in a chapter titled, John Cooner's, Wilmington's Colonial Christmas Celebrants. In it, Lewis recounts the jubilant, brightly dressed, and musical celebrations of enslaved people during the colonial holiday season, a tradition known by many supposed names and spellings, including John Cooner's and John Canoe. The celebrations were said to happen in the days around Christmas all the way through New Year's, when enslaved people would be given the freedom to gather and dress in colorful costumes, wear masks, play instruments, and chant songs as they walked the streets of Wilmington, stopping in front of homes to perform for those inside. As Lewis writes, quote, The John Cooners would have regular chants, repeating one line of a song several times, and then ending with upward and rising notes which could be heard for many blocks. The songs would be accompanied with the rattling of bones, sonorous blowing of cow horns, tinkling of triangles, muffled beating of drums, or other noise devices used to add impressiveness to the weirdness of the spectacle. End quote. For the white residents of Colonial Wilmington, it probably was weird to watch a typically and intentionally subdued group of people suddenly burst with energy, sound, and a colorful display of a culture that was far removed from their own. But that was said to be the beauty of these celebrations, an unapologetic, undeniable reminder of the distinctive identity these people had been forced to relinquish. It is unknown where the name and tradition truly comes from, but some have suggested that the John Canoe celebrations were rooted in the story of a real person a folk hero, and a member of the Akan people on the Gold Coast of Africa in modern-day Ghana. This figure, supposedly known as John Canoe, was said to have helped retake his people's land from Europeans around Christmas time in the early 1700s, news of which eventually reached Jamaica, where people began the annual celebration in commemoration of his victory. Others relate the name to different cultural references to masks, which are central to these celebrations, no matter their location. Lewis doesn't make much mention of these theories in his chapter. Instead, he focuses on what these celebrations looked like in Wilmington, and relays details of them as someone who did not see them firsthand, but rather heard of them filtered down through the generations of those who did. As is the case with many tellings of enslaved traditions, he uses the recollections of these celebrations as evidence that slave owners would grant their enslaved leniency from a rigorous work schedule during the holidays to express their cultural traditions. 
a sweeping generalization that many historians now push back on as a core tenet of the Lost Cause narrative that arose out of the post-Civil War era. While it is understood that certain privileges were granted by slave owners during this time of year, characterizing their relationship with those they enslaved so broadly does nothing to acknowledge the motivations and opportunities behind such a decision. As such, this chapter affords us an opportunity for instructive and essential criticism of Moore's rhetoric and the ideas perpetuated for centuries about the relationships between the enslaved and those who owned them, while also better understanding the very real traditions that were allowed to thrive, as Lewis discusses. Was the holiday season a more harmonious time between owner and owned? Were there specific traditions and celebrations used by slaves to commemorate the holiday and their faith on their terms? We'll answer these questions and more as we celebrate a John Canoe Christmas on this episode of Berguin Wright Presents Cape Fear Legends and Lore. Joining the show today in the Bergwin Wright House archives is Tara White, an assistant professor in African American history, women's history, and public history at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Thank you so much for being here, Professor White. Thank you for having me. You came highly recommended by a lot of the people that work here with us at the site. Um, you work with a lot of our part-timers, a lot of those who give tours with us and work events with us, um, who are students at UNCW. So um, we're so excited to kind of bridge the gap even more between the university and the house here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I wanted to start off with the chapter specifically that I gave to you from Lewis T. Moore's book about the John Cooners, the John Canoe celebrations here in Wilmington. And there, there's a lot to kind of parse from that chapter, but I want to start with the celebrations themselves. Um, he gives some very specific information about what they might have looked like here in Wilmington, but what do we know more broadly about the John Canoe or the many names that they go by? What do we know about these celebrations in general, maybe even beyond Wilmington's borders? So... The John Cooners celebrations actually exist right now beyond uh, Wilmington and the Atlantic coast. It's celebrated as far away as the Caribbean, places like Jamaica, Bahamas, right? We can kind of trace the, I guess, the, the, influence of, of this from the uh, West African coast, right? transatlantic slave trade mm -hmm. <clears throat> down through the Caribbean because the um, ships stopped there first, mm -hmm. right? And then back up to the Atlantic coast. Okay. So this has its roots, obviously, in the slave trade. It's going to come from these, these originating countries. What kind of things are being brought over that are part of these customs, both there and here? What kind of similarities do we see? We see a lot of what we call um, cultural syncretisms, Right where people have pulled the, uh, African cultures and, 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 and not just the one culture, because of course, this festival kind of, you know, it does shape and change over time, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's shaped and changed over time by the other cultures that come in contact 
with the original culture. And so you have, uh, and, and, and of course, mirroring the nature of, you know, the enslavement experience here in North America, what you see is you see a bunch of different Af- West African cultures that are melded into one culture through, you know, kind of syncretic process where people kind of borrow and they use pieces and parts of lots of different West African cultures um, to make one culture because they're, you know, in, in essence here together. Yeah. Right. But the nature of enslavement um, kind of makes them into one people. One thing that I found fascinating, I had read this story many years ago when I first encountered Lewis T. Moore's book. Mm-hmm. And more recently, I've seen other accounts that mention North Carolina, that mention Wilmington in association with John Cooner's John Canoe, that kind of surprised me because, you know, when you read a, a local anthology history book, there's always something that's going to favor making this place even more special for the readers, whether they're reading it here locally or not. And so I I assumed that, you know, Lewis was focusing on Wilmington as this hub of it, but it does seem like there is a great confluence of at least reports of these events. So what do we know about Wilmington's specific role in this? It doesn't sound like, obviously, as we just discussed, that it originates here, but maybe the recollections from white people who are writing about it, they think that it does because they might be seeing it here. How does that work with Wilmington? So the people who experienced it probably believe that it originated here because they hadn't seen it in other places. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, you know, our experiences are only as big as, you know, how how far we travel, Mm -hmm. right? And so this event and and cultural event, right, um, would look like something that only our people do mm-hmm. unless you've traveled to you know um, been involved with people in the Caribbean or in the Bahamas or in any of the other places or even in in West Africa because um, in in Ghana where this originated you know there's still some shade mm-hmm. of this of this um, cultural event. And so um, unless you've gone to those places, you don't realize that this is not, you know, one off. This is something that uh, has uh, has footprints in a lot of different places. And so so that's one part of that. The other part of it is, you know, I, I think what has happened is historians and, and folklorists who are studying and looking at these um, African, what we call African retentions, right? They are um, using, well, they're looking at all of the, you know, the folks who have done the research, mm-hmm. looked at all the um, instances where they could find these things. And, and of course, Wilmington pops up, but it, it, it does make sense because Wilmington is uh, a very old city, right? And very much present in the colonial slave trade. You know, it is a center because it's a port city, a port right? City. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to see that um, centrality of, of Wilmington as port city, as center of trade, right, mm-hmm. in this event. And, and, and because uh, Wilmington is one of those places where the boat stops. And information right. is traded. You know, people are talking about things they've seen either here or elsewhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's not just about, you know, the boat stops, but it's also, it is also about information being traded. And and think about this, you know, it's, it's, um, 
that those kinds of festivals would not be seen in a place like Alabama because uh, unless you're talking about, you know, Mobile, somewhere like that. But Alabama's particularly because we're, we're much older, mm-hmm. right? In the um, in the sense of um, the you know colonial age, but the, this colonial city, very early colonial city, you would definitely see something like that. That's why I always tell people that when we've done this podcast and, and work that I've done in the past with local history, not every town has this much history. Not every area of this country has this much history. So we're very fortunate. Absolutely. It does retain a lot of these very interesting stories that are by this point a blend of fact and invention, Mm -hmm. but they are still rooted in something very real, which is why I I liked doing the the fact and fiction kind of framework. And because of the age of the city, you can see connections um, to the colonial past, Mm -hmm. right? that you wouldn't see or may not see or may have have been there and died out in other places, right? Absolutely. So what do we know about these actual celebrations themselves? In in just some of these these accounts that I've read and and some that I shared with you, Mm -hmm. they mention uh, musical instruments. They mention masks being worn. Mm -hmm. They mention that it's only men, but some are dressed, as we would consider today, in drag as women. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a collection of pennies. You know, what kind of things do we know or believe we're part of this celebration? And so um, according to, now I'm going to start with Moore's account because Moore account, Moore's account has, does have men and men and, and men dressed um, in, in women's uh, or, or women's hair and women's garb um, to really, this is about demasculinizing the other, right? Mm-hmm. But it's also about, you know, showing kind of a cultural, cultural strength as opposed to, you know, the other with, with the cultural weakness and whatever. But you also have elements of celebration, elements of religion, mm-hmm. right, um, with the bones and with the almost otherworldly nature of the masks, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, again, it's kind of a syncretic blend, but it, it originates with this very real, mm-hmm. very real encounter, mm-hmm. you know, between the Dutch and um, the uh, Akan people, mm-hmm. right? And so folklore, again, because it's, it, it's amazing to me how Africans have taken this, this story and made it into, you know, this folklore piece that then has translated here and has been in in some ways adapted. Mm-hmm. So it's folklore that's been adapted and, and, and created into something else. It reminds me in some ways, some pieces of this, and, and especially when we talk about um, them, you know, the dressing up, the, the mask, the hair, the bones, the, you know, um, different thing, different aspects of it. The later iteration of it, post um, post slavery, with whites, where white Wilmingtonians adapted it, kind of. Now that piece kind of reminded me of of um, minstrelsy. Yeah, right, absolutely. And you know the um, T. D. Rice's Jim Crow mm-hmm. character and, and and that that kind of stuff. But all of these elements are um, both cultural and spiritual, 
and and that's what the Africans saw, mm-hmm. right? And this was about um, exhibiting, you know, the the power of their culture and the power of uh, probably their deities, right? Mm-hmm. And helping this person to um, overpower and um, stave off mm-hmm. this this um, um, Dutch traitor. Yeah. Well, one thing I want to share with, with our listeners, and, and I've shared this with you, but I, I want to read it. It's from a book that, that I happened to pick up a couple years ago called Yuletide and Dixie. It's by mm-hmm. Robert B. May. Mm-hmm. And it talks about not only enslaved traditions around Christmas, but the way it's remembered in the South, mm-hmm. which kind of feeds in specifically to what Lewis is writing about. And one excerpt that I want to read, mm-hmm. it says, John Canoe involved male performers who donned exotic-looking garments and accessories made out of animal skins and rags and marched from place to place as they shouted, played music, clattered bones, hit triangles, and danced and gyrated, sometimes parroting white authority figures like African coast slave traders, public officials, and slave-holding aristocrats by adding accessories like periwigs, tricorn hats, frock coats, and black top hats to their motley attire. Often non-performing slaves drawn to the procession's commotion trailed behind. The assertion in in some of this is that they're using it to, one, release tensions with some of these relationships that they have been forced into, but also to, in a way, mock. I mean, what do we see in some of this? I know that this is a bit more specific, but... No, 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 no. Some of of this is is about... Um, mocking and you know the satirical tradition in in West African um, folklore and 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 culture, but mm-hmm. also um, also this is I mean think about this. You have um, people who are actually in bondage, yeah, right, and they have an opportunity to mock the people who are holding them in bondage, mm-hmm. right, by looking back at an event where they were the victors. Mm-hmm. It's it's a celebration in that way. In, in that way, it is. And it's probably also an opportunity for them to um, actually believe that, you know, they may not always, um, <laughs> this, this isn't a permanent state, yeah. right? Um, that, that at some point with the help of, you know, their deities or whatever, that they would actually be able to overcome and overthrow these these colonizers and enslavers. That does get to a point of this relationship between the enslaver and the enslaved. Mm-hmm. Because in Lewis's book, mm-hmm. he points out something that stands out to a lot of people who, who work with history today, especially those willing to think about the complex nature of Southern memory. Mm-hmm. And he suggests that there at this time of the year was a a less or a more congenial, a more friendly in, interaction between an enslaved person and their owner. Mm-hmm. And he says specifically, and I'll read it, he says, in those not to be forgotten times, the relation of slave, master, and mistress was one of sympathetic understanding and friendly interest in mutual welfare. At Christmas seasons especially, a greater deal of real liberty was enjoyed by the colored people than was their privilege during other periods of the year. They were permitted to band together in groups and from Christmas Eve through the advent of New Year, Wilmington veritably rang with chants, songs, and merrymaking of the John Cooners. 
What are your thoughts on this characterization of the slave and 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 their owner and the person who has put them in bondage? Okay, so historians have of, of slavery have started to refer to slavery as as multiple slaveries mm-hmm. because um, and, and and that that's probably not the exact word they use, but in in the sense that um, slavery is, is different wherever you are. I mean, and so slavery in North Carolina, of course, is different from slavery in Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. So that's number one. Number two, slavery in um, places where you have a majority African-American uh, population will be different from slavery in places where there aren't a lot of um, enslaved people, mm-hmm. right? So I think that part of it is definitely there. And, but in all of those instances, the institution of slavery is negotiated mm-hmm. in all of those instances. Um, there are places where people understand that there has to be, you know, people have to kind of pull back. And there are definitely um, areas of resistance. You know, uh, people uh, people know that African Americans um, are bound to run away. They are bound to um, burn down the master's house. They are burned. <laughs> they are bound to do whatever it takes to get out of um, get out of bondage. And so. You know, um, there are spots and places where, again, they negotiate, yeah. right? And this is one of those um, spots and places where they negotiate. You know, um, the enslavers know that if, you know, they are harsh and uh, punitive during the holiday season, they're probably going to have a bad holiday, yeah. right? Because, again, <clears throat> you know, what we see and what we we didn't hear a lot in the liter, uh, you know, in the um, stories about slavery and enslavement is that people resisted all the time. They were always resisting, mm-hmm. and folks were always afraid of them resisting, resisting right? And so um, they realized, you know, enslavers realized, okay, there are going to have to be some places where we're going to have to give, yeah, right. If we want a good Christmas, if we don't want, you know, all our Christmas dinner burned, if we don't, <laughs> if we don't want, you know, uh, a couple of people poisoned, uh, whatever, because because folks, you know, people, there is something to be said for people who, uh, for human beings and the desire to be free, yeah, and and we see that in the writings of people like. Um, Frederick Douglass and even Wilmington's own uh, David Walker, mm-hmm. there is something to be said, yeah. right? And so um, this was a part of that negotiation and making sure that there's, you know, some ease up that will, yeah, will cut tension and will allow for everybody to um, enjoy enjoy the holiday, Right. I think when people listen to this story or even learn about the John Cooner's celebration, you know, for the first time, mm-hmm. coming from the perspective that we have today, one of those first questions is probably, why would they let this happen? But that sounds to be at the root of it, of you let it happen so that you, you know, you can ease the tension, you can stave off something that might be worse for you. Because 
you know, there is some power in, in, in the group and how much they relied on the institution of slavery. And think about this, you know, people, it, when at a certain point you had more African-Americans here than, than whites, mm-hmm. right? And so the power of numbers you can see that in the way that slavery plays out in places like South Carolina, right? The power of numbers. And then as we go along and there are other, you know, there, there are these huge uprisings that, you know, changes the tone and tenor of, you know, John Cooners and, 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 and or John Canoe and, you'll see a restrictions, mm-hmm. you know, the restrictions start later on as people become more and more fearful of um of of rebellion right well and that's that was my other question for what lewis says in here you know he characterizes it as a a relationship of sympathetic understanding and friendly interest in mutual welfare that feels a bit dismissive of of the true institution that was slavery and maybe a, a a washing over of some of those things and i just thought that was an interesting kind of point to make in this larger conversation of, of the, as you said, the negotiations that were allowed to happen to give people more freedom during the holidays. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, is it a fair assessment to say sympathetic understanding and friendly interest in mutual welfare? Um, I think at times and places, mm-hmm. but considering the fact that these people are property, I mean, they're mm-hmm. enslaved, they have no... They have no legal rights. They have no, you know, mm-hmm. um, they have no legal standing before the law, right? Or no, yeah, no standing before the law. They um, are considered just like this this beautiful chair I'm looking at um, as property. They are, um, you know, um, working and um, laboring against their will. They don't have a right to their own bodies right their their own bodies don't belong to them their children don't belong to them no matter how they've you know um bore children they belong to someone else even down to their physical personhood they they do not have a right to assert that right um someone else can do whatever he or she wants to this property that he or she owns and so in in that I mean place in that broader sense you know no it's not really mutual interest um, mutual interest is when you have two people who are, have equal power yeah. right and so people don't want to deal with um, the the power relationships right <sighs> that exist between um, the slave owner and the enslaved and that you know in in many instances this person uh who is considered you know no more than an animal has absolutely no power right in this relationship and 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 so as as thinking about this from the position of the enslaved do i continue to to make this contentious right or do I do some of the things to, you know, quell this 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 possibility? And especially if I have, uh, you know, if I've I've done what people do, uh, fallen in love. I have parents. I have, you know, I've 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 you know made a relationship with someone and had children. Right? 
then there are other interests for me, right? Mm -hmm. And not, you know, going and, you know, deciding to cut off the master's head. I, you know, I, I'm <laughs> yeah. right. Yes. <laughs> because that's going to make it, it, it doesn't make it bad just for me. It's going to make it bad for all the people that I love yeah. and I care for. And so again, it, it's the interests an, are not the same. No, they're not. Yeah. Absolutely not. And, and to, to put them in that, I think is a dismissal of, of the nuance that you and I talked about Absolutely. even before we started recording about the nuance of this Absolutely. era that, Boiling it down to Absolutely. in these not so not to be forgotten times, the relation of slave master and mistress was one of sympathetic understanding. I think that that is a generalization that doesn't get to the the nuance of the time. And it is part of the the moonlight and magnolias view, mm-hmm. right of um, of slavery and of the South that a lot of Southerners held. You know, and and and. and <sighs> I don't know if this is a people thing, but, you know, people like to look back at the good old days, yeah. right? Is that what the Moonlight and Magnolia and, is? And that is exactly what it is. The good old days. Um, you know, the, the characterization of, for the Deep South, the Terra, right? Mm-hmm. Terra, yeah. where are the, you know, it, I, I'm, and I'm alluding to Gone with the Wind. The plantation, and, yeah. And Terra, the plantation. And, um, you know, where... You know, you had the beautiful Southern bells and the um, um, lovely frocks and these um, chivalrous gentlemen and the magnolias and, and moonlight. And <laughs> that's right. And and you know, mint juleps on the front porch, and you know, and 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 these these wonderful happy slaves, these wonderful happy beings who are waiting on uh, waiting on us hand and foot and making our lives so much easier. Right. A life of ease. I said something at the beginning of this episode in our intro that I feel that we are as humans, at least today, hardwired because of things like the Grinch and A Christmas Carol to believe that that the spirit of the season, I think I said, um, compels us to be a bit kinder, a bit more open hearted. And I think that is why if you read something like this, it seems, well, yeah. The, the, the harshness of, of slavery as an institution might be softened at this time. And it sounds like there could have been place for negotiation for that. But more importantly, it sounds like John Canoe events and celebrations were a chance where the enslaved who did not have the power ever really were able to assert who they were and that they were there. I, I think it's probably no coincidence that they were raucous they were loud they were in your face they were hard to deny um and i think that's probably more of a celebration of the season than anything absolutely what do we know about the end of of this i know you said that these continue in some form or fashion even to today but Mm -hmm. what do we know about their colonial interpretation and how it was phased out because you know at least in this chapter from lewis Mm -hmm. he quotes a man saying that the expressive nature of the celebrations was deemed hurtful to the image that African-Americans were trying to portray after the Civil War, Mm -hmm. that it was seen as making them look bad. Mm -hmm. But he says that people in Wilmington liked it, so there was some curiosity about where it went in that previous heyday. So what do we know about the end of that iteration of it? Let's let's get at the... um the ideas there. So making them look bad. So in, in post-Civil War 
South, what we know is that um, uh, what we see is African-Americans uh, uh, creating institutions and developing, um, you know, their own communities and um, going out and getting involved in, in things like um, politics and um, other um other endeavors. And, and so um, they want people to see them as, as serious people, as serious beings. You know, you're still having to fight images of um, African-Americans um, from, from, the, from, from the menstrual scene, right? You know, they're still having to fight the image of, uh, this looks too much like Zip Coon, right? Um, this bubbling, bumbling um, idiot who is, you know, trying to use big words and appear to be um, important and 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 that kind of thing. Um, and it it goes back to this notion of um, you know Africans as savages, right? So the bones and the animal hair and and so. Um, people are trying to dissociate the, the folks who are leaders really want to then dissociate themselves from these uh, cultural traditions in a in an attempt to uh, you know this is about respectability right and the politics of respectability yeah and actually it goes back to what we said at the beginning of it's then in the later 1800s that you see, white residents start to pick up some of these customs in a more minstrel kind of display of them. Because when you see the absence of them, you know, you could say, I guess people missed them, but really they were kind of taking hold of these customs of people and, and not letting them forget them. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so in the, in in the, in the same sense that we see, you know, the um, TD rights, you know, become Jim Crow, Mm -hmm. right? This is um, what we see with the uh, John Cooners that that whites adapt mm-hmm. and 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 make and in that menstrual tradition, right, um, develop this and, and and continue this 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 celebration and this festivity. And you see African Americans who are, you know, fighting for you know it, not just fighting to be seen as respectable but also to be seen as citizens mm-hmm. right real citizens who have a real stake in this in this democracy mm-hmm. and who want to have a real say in this democracy and there's this of course at the same time you know you have this pushback um that's that's really trying to shut them out of of this um, democratic experiment, and, and 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 that's that's what you see in the post-war, you know, post-war in early late nineteenth, early twentieth century, um, is them trying to fight for, um, fight to be taken seriously, but also fight to maintain their political power, right? The political gain political power, then maintain political power. In the in the post-war period, and so all of this feeds into into that, and is a, is part and parcel of that. Yeah. As we kind of close out this conversation, what did the holiday season look like for the enslaved people in this area? Not just not just this, you know, maybe loosening of of 
you know, the institution, as we talked about being negotiated. But were there other traditions that would have been central to these communities in the colonial and then certainly the the eras after it? I would think that, um, and, and again, because each area is different. And, and, and because of the differences in slaveries, right, and the, and the experience of slavery in, in different areas, yeah, it's going to be different. But I would think that um, the holiday season for many African Americans would be, you know, especially if, if their family is still there. Right, um, would be a, a season of of merry and merriment that their family's still there. Cause you're going into the new year, depending on when the fiscal year ends for the owner. It you know it's probably ended with the hope that in the new year they don't lose their family members, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is a time to celebrate. This may be the last time that you see your husband or your children or your parents, right? And so that, you know, figures into a season of of celebration, but also a season of hope, hope and promise that their families would stay together, hope and promise that, um, you know, slavery would end, hope and promise that um, they could actually you know, live out their days with their family members. And as it got closer to, um, you know, the Civil War and then the end of the war, you know, it's the hope and promise of freedom, right, um, that they are celebrating. And so I guess whether it's through the, the John Canoe, John Canoe's events, or just being with people wherever they were, you appreciate the holiday season for what it was, what, what it was given to you in that moment. What was, what was possible? So Absolutely. Um, thank you so much for being here to talk about this. Um, this was such a, a, an interesting topic that I, I don't think people know about much now and, and gets to, as we've talked about a lot of different aspects of, you know, the, the time of slavery, but um, I'm glad we were able to do it. And, and thank you so much for, for being part of it. And thank you. And and these holidays now, John Canoe is still celebrated in Jamaica. And so for my colleagues and, and uh, friends who are Jamaican, that's that's still a part of um of of, of that uh, of those countries. And um uh, for my I have a really good couple of really good friends and who are also historians. Yeah. And um one is a uh, couple, several are Jamaican. And um, one is Bahamian, and this is a big part of um, of the, the the cultural year for them. So we oh. certainly don't see it in Wilmington anymore, as no. as it was depicted. But no. it does not mean that it died out. That's still something it that is, is very central to the holiday season for people. Absolutely, absolutely. absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me again. That's it for this episode of Berguin Wright Presents Cape Fear Legends and Lore. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll be back in two weeks with our next episode, where we will explore the fact versus fiction in another chapter of Lewis T. Moore's Stories Old and New of the Cape Fear Region. Until then, be sure to subscribe to this podcast by searching Berguin Wright Presents on your favorite podcast platform, so you never miss an episode. 
You can also visit us at the Berguin Wright House in Wilmington. Monday through Saturday, we give tours of the site that will expose you to a fascinating history of North Carolina in colonial America. And while you're there, you can also pick up a copy of Stories Old and New of the Cape Fear region, which is now available in our gift shop. And be sure to follow the Berguin Wright House and Gardens on all social media platforms, including Facebook and Instagram, for the latest on what we're doing at the site. As a nonprofit, this podcast and all the exciting projects done at the Berguin Wright House are made possible by donations and community support. Please consider making a donation, or better yet, join our membership program with exclusive perks and tours. All the money raised goes towards the further education and preservation of Wilmington's oldest historic site. For more information, visit our website in each episode's description or at bergwinwrighthouse.com. And thank you so much for your support. This podcast is written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. We would like to thank Durable Restoration Company for sponsoring the podcast this season. And we would also like to take a moment to thank Rachel Ross for our cover art and the National Society of the Colonial Dames of America in the state of North Carolina for their continued support. See you next time on Berguin Wright Presents Cape Fear Legends and Lore.